0: Should we welcome our uh, guest for the hour? Michael Weiss is here with us, and CJ, please take it away.
1: Awesome. First, uh, Michael. Well, let's go ahead and just do a mic check. Can you uh, can you hear us okay?
2: Yep, I hear you fine. Mic coming through okay. You're coming through. Great. Excellent.
1: All right. Well, everyone, uh, we have a very special guest today. We have Michael, who is um, you know someone I've been following for years now. I actually used his book. On ISIS as part of my thesis, and he's currently working on a book on the GRU. So he's focused in, of course, on the this war of aggression against Ukraine. He's been a longstanding advocate of Ukraine, and we're so happy to have him here. So Michael, for for your awareness, if you if you if you don't know, many of us speakers have been talking about the war and providing insights and updates for <laughs> well almost 200 days now, 24/7. We have. Some wow. European military veterans, uh, and we also have some American military veterans, and also we're, we're lucky to have Constantine, who who actually fought in 2014, 2015. He's Ukrainian now, living in Texas. So we all we, we all come from different parts of the world to try and uh, support Ukraine. So Michael, if you don't mind, we'll just get right into it.
2: Sure, take it yeah,
1: away. Yeah, so. So, Michael, you know, you have got a pretty extensive background in national security. Just, you know, what were your thoughts on February 24th when this war kicked off? Was it something you were watching closely? Were you already starting to write your book or or what were you thinking on that day?
2: Yeah, I was about halfway through my book. Funnily enough, I had been working on a chapter on the GRU's involvement in the Spanish Civil War uh, and had just finished writing about the defense of Madrid, which took on a kind of mythological sort of aspect in, in posterity, particularly about, you know, the international brigades, foreign volunteers who had come to defend the Spanish Republic against a nationalist putsch. Uh, and all of it, of course, was was orchestrated by the Comintern and the Soviet Union. Um, and so it was kind of eerily historically opposite that this war took place as I was doing this kind of scholarship. Um, because I, I mean, obviously what, what we're seeing in Ukraine is, is by no means a civil war. It is a war of conquest that's since gone sideways. But I mean, so many of the, uh, the components and, and facts that, that I brought to bear on that chapter, I've now seen replicated in the 21st century, including, I mean, we have the international legion in Ukraine, right? Foreign volunteers coming, uh, not at the behest and under the patronage of russia but quite the opposite um so yeah it was it was it was a surreal moment but i had been uh, in kiev just weeks prior to um the invasion and i had a simple objective um in my reporting there i, I wanted to know why um against this sort of uh, avalanche of intelligence coming out from the united states and the uk in particular suggesting that this this thing was going to happen. It was all but inevitable. The Ukrainians were seemingly um, calm and, and, and not worried about it. And what I came away with from that trip, I spent about a week uh, talking to members of the RADA, um, the chairman of the National Security Council, SBU, GUR. Uh, what I came away with was the sense that y- Ukrainians didn't think Putin would do this because they didn't think he was that stupid and that crazy. Um, There was a a real sense of uh, self-confidence in the Ukrainian capability to defend the country against any kind of Russian attack, uh, be it something more limited in Donbass or, you know, one scenario I'd heard was a kind of Kosovo style bombardment of missiles um, without necessarily a major ground component. But, But the long and short of it was the Ukrainians were wrong, but for the right reason. They had a better understanding of their own determination, their own military know-how than I think we in the West, certainly among the military analysts I had been consulting prior to this, who you know, were all of a mind that 72 hours max and Kiev is toast, right? Um, air superiority within a half hour, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't need to go through the litany of, of misassumptions that were made at the start. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I was, you know, it, it's strange because I came home thinking, okay, well, the Ukrainians seem pretty um, assured that this isn't going to happen. And they think that this is just uh, kind of American hysteria. But I also took very seriously the intelligence leaks that were coming out uh, because that was sort of unprecedented. You know, the IC has never really um, laundered actionable Intel in real time in quite that way before. And so I don't know. I, I, I I think I described it at one point on social media as as sort of dark nights of the soul, crippling self-doubt. Will this happen? Won't it happen? And if it does, what's going to happen? Um, So I I simply kind of kept my head down and just stuck to reporting Um, because, you know, I I say this all the time. I'm not a military analyst. I don't have a background in war. I have to sort of learn these things as I go and I have to rely on people such as yourself, CJ, uh, to tell me, you know, how to understand artillery, how it works, how it doesn't work. Uh, Etc. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've been to Ukraine twice since the invasion, both times to Kiev, which I've seen now transform very rapidly from a city under siege into. I mean, I was last there in I think June, and it was like summer in Paris. Uh, you know, the hedgehogs had been removed, the sandbags were taken down, and the only Russian tanks uh, on the street were the burnt out husks of uh, Russian armor, which had been set up as a kind of museum exhibit right in front of St. Michael's Cathedral. So, I mean, it's 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 kind of extraordinary. These past seven months have gone by very, very quickly, and yet they feel like decades uh, of, of history crammed in.
1: No, and that's it's so interesting because, you know, in these sort of situations, we can only rely on, you know, personal experience and those we trust. You know, my own experience with U- the Ukrainian military is a very limited training exercise in Germany where I came away very impressed. But, you know, of course, that doesn't necessarily translate to the, Strategic will of a nation and their ability to to integrate large uh, combat formations. So of course, you know we were all listening to these experts that were so wrong. So you know one thing that I I was also wrong on, and I'm very interested on your take on this was in the first few weeks of the war, it, it became pretty clear that Ukraine was winning on one important front, and really that's the the information uh, warfare aspect of this, which I know you've covered extensively in the past, and and we know for a fact that. <laughs> You know, despite the fact that America eventually eradicated ISIS from, from numerous countries around the world, it took a long time to get that information war right. You know, they were they were kicking their ass on Twitter and doing a great job of this sort of decentralized troll network that was um, pretty effective for a time being. And, and to translate that to Russia, of course, we know with the 2016 election and other times that the Russian disinformation sphere is so strong. How do you think Ukraine was able to overcome that quickly, or do you have any
2: other thoughts regarding that? I think... Being under existential threat, having your country occupied for eight years and then a looming crisis of, you know, your capital city falling, your president being taken hostage or executed uh, and essentially just losing your independence and sovereignty does remarkable things for human creativity and pluckiness. I mean, you, you mentioned ISIS. Look, I remember talking to guys in the State Department in 2014, 2015, who were, I mean, just just sort of paralyzed with with. A failure to understand how ISIS had managed to radicalize and recruit from all over the world and do so in a way that seemingly counterintuitive. Most totalitarian movements tend to hide their crimes and their atrocities. ISIS leaned into theirs. Right. We all remember these videos. Um, Jordanian airmen set a light in a cage, uh, the skin literally dripping, melting off his 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 bones Um This had a galvanizing effect when you would have assumed it would have done the opposite. And it it took a a great deal of effort to try and understand and then explain how it was that ISIS was was prosecuting its own kind of strategic communications, um, if you like. Uh, And, you know, I mean, I I remember hearing American diplomats say, well, you know, the thing we need to do is bring Muslims from the Arab world to the United States and show them that we have mosques mosques here and we're a pluralistic society. And I just looked at these guys and I, I laughed. I said, you really, you, you, you have no idea what you're talking about if you think that that's going to counteract um, the ISIS messaging. And I mean, in the end of the, as you say, I mean, the eradication of the caliphate. ISIS is still very much a, a in, international security threat, I should say. Um, I mean, look at what they they've managed to do in Afghanistan. Um, but uh, you know, the eradication of the caliphate, the the, the demonstration of their weakness, of their failure, did more, I think, to dismantle their information operation than any kind of um, messaging from the United States. And, you know, look, when it comes to combating Russian disinformation and propaganda, I have to say, I mean, I've I've been working on that for a very long time. I I co-wrote a paper with Peter Pomerantzib in 2014 called The Menace of Unreality, which was largely premised on what the Russians had done uh, in terms of I.O. in uh, Ukraine. Right. And I mean, that paper looks very quaint and outdated in in the rearview mirror because neither Peter nor myself had any idea that this would become a sort of global phenomenon in a way that it hadn't been since the Cold War. I mean, obviously, you had the U.S. election interference operations. You've got Yevgeny Prigozhin, who doesn't just run a mercenary corps or a so-called troll farm out of St. Petersburg, but is now. I mean, doing government in a box style political technology, all, particularly in Africa. I mean, I've seen leaked documents from hi, in, inside his organization. It's, it's sort of like Paul Manafort on steroids. Um, so, you know, the Russians very, very quickly, and I think to most people's minds unexpectedly, return to a very Soviet style of active measures. Um, I know that's become a bit of a cliche, but it, it, it's still a KGB term of art. I think it's, it's well worth using. And the Ukrainians, look they had several things going for them. Number 1, um the guys who are essentially running the war, particularly at the intelligence level. Um I've interviewed some very senior officers in GUR, which is Ukraine's military intelligence service. They were in um Soviet academies. They were basically training to be officers of the GRU until the Berlin Wall collapsed, until the Soviet Union, or the empire I, I should say, fell apart. So To them, they're fighting a mirror image. They know how the Russians think. They know their tradecraft. They know their TTPs. uh, And they'd been telling me that for years. And, you know, it was hard not to feel like I was being kind of gaslighted or misled. Um, But I think that they were, as I said earlier, they had a better um, understanding of their own capabilities than we did. And look, America is still playing catch up, right? I mean, we spent three decades essentially pivoting away from Institutional knowledge and a playbook—a playbook for dealing with a not just a conventional power, but a, a superpower and a nuclear-armed superpower with a, a vast and sophisticated intelligence capability—and you know, insofar as our diplomatic corps rotates in and out, people in the CIA and the intelligence services retire, um, we kind of lost. We, we, we sort of succumb to a collective amnesia about how the Russians operate. And, you know, this has been a kind of trial by fire for the United States. But Ukraine, as I said, for eight, nine years now, they've, they've had to deal with this. Um, and their sense of humor, uh, the, the, the innovation, the, the kind of, the, their trolling capability on Twitter, uh, it's really remarkable. I think, frankly, people in, in our space will be studying this for years to come, because uh, there's a lot we could learn from what the Ukrainians have done.
1: And I think it's just so important to, to really hit on this topic because we, we do talk about it a lot in this space. And, and now that we have an expert in terrorism here, I want to I pick your brain on this. And that's regarding, you know, you sort of mentioned the, the conventional, um, you know, force and military doing these sort of terrible acts, you know, as compared to ISIS. I guess what are your thoughts regarding the, the movement, both, of course, the United States and other countries to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror? You know, I've, I, I think I dissent maybe a little bit from the room on generally how that should go about. Due to the, you know, the sort of doctrinal understanding of what terrorism is, which is, you know, of course, clearly happening, you know, violence unprovoked against civilians in um, Ukraine for a political purpose. But I just I just wonder what your thoughts are on that, because you have studied this for so long.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I understand the arguments against doing it. Um, and, and, you know, they're premised on that they come from statecraft and, and sort of the legal ramifications. But I don't think morally there's really any question. And by the way, it, it doesn't start with Ukraine. I mean, 1999 the Moscow apartment bombings I think pretty clearly every journalist who who covered that David Satter wrote a book essentially about all of this uh, and was kicked out of the country I think he was the first American journalist to be expelled from Russia after the uh the, the end of the Cold War Um that was state terrorism perpetrated by the FSB not against foreigners but against their own people their own civilians Um so I, I don't I mean I you know I had this question put to me in in Budapest recently, of all places, and was told, oh, you know, this is really no different from what the, uh, the, you know, SEAL Team 6 did to Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. I mean, I I said, "Okay, so, you know, that's to say that GRU Unit 29155 going to Vibrica in the Czech Republic, blowing up uh, uh, ammunition depots and killing Czech guards were essentially seconded to the Ministry of Defense. It was a Ministry of Defense-run facility. Uh, that's that's the moral equivalent of killing the architect of 9/11. So I just, you know, I, I don't have time for that kind of fatuous stupidity. Um, you know, and and I think at this point, look, I I don't care if if the U.S. designates or doesn't. I mean, we all know, and I think you get you, great pains to, to to make an argument that Putin is not. A mass murderous war criminal. Um, but look, I understand also the the imperative for, for the Ukrainians to have this done, because, as I said, the, the legal ramifications for them would be um, that Russia is even more isolated uh, economically, for sure, but diplomatically as well. So, you know, look, it, it, it's just not not a subject I've given too much thought to at the moment.
1: No, and that makes sense. You know, of course, when we're talking about, you know, there's a lot of different war crimes to cover, you know, it'd be impossible to cover them all quickly. But, you know, one that we focused on a lot in the space, of course, is these sort of terror bombings that Russia does. Um, You know, they say they're against military targets, but then we quickly geolocate them and find that, you know, it's shopping malls with military targets that are, you know, 500 to 1,000 meters away, right? So either they're being extremely negligent and just missing, or they are targeting. And In the case of these sort of weapons, we know how good they are, and we know exactly what they're doing so for the first couple couple months of course this was very difficult to counter you know ukrainians air defense unfortunately suffered massive losses in the first week uh, maybe up to 50 percent and they had really no capability to strike back but recently and especially since the beginning of august you know when uh high mars time was in in full bloom and, and something else seemed to emerge this sort of new capacity for Ukraine to strike deeper into Russian controlled territory. And this is something you've taken interest to.
2: Could you explain sort of why you're interested in this and how it came to your attention? There's a lot about this war that, you know, I I know we all live in a kind of very online uh, media space. And uh, I have the utmost respect for open source intelligence analysts. I mean, I I was a very early cheerleader of uh, Oryx blog who was doing yeoman's work in, in calculating Russian losses both in terms of equipment and personnel but there's a war you don't see um i think the that when when the history books are written we're going to find out that what the united states has been doing quietly with plausible deniability is a lot uh, more than, than than many of us would have expected um uh now that's not to say i'm i'm you know i have some kind of revealed truth about classified intelligence or or, or clandestine operations but dot, dot, dot. Um, there have been indications that the Ukrainians have got more in their arsenal than, than perhaps has been publicly disclosed. So I think you're, you're, you're kind of beating around the bush of our favorite topic of the Saki airbase strike, right? So, you know, James uh, Rushton, who is um, my co-writer at Yahoo News and just a brilliant weapons and military analyst, we were looking at, at, at that attack, which was, I, I forget when exactly, in August, several weeks ago, and we said right well how could the ukrainians have done this um you know one of the 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 lines that had been advanced was well special forces came in and you know set off a bunch of c4 charges or perhaps used loitering munitions and they did you know uh, by one western intelligence assessment more than half of the black sea fleet naval uh, uh squadron had been taken out by that attack and it just didn't add up to us. I mean, uh, we queried uh, at least three or four past and present special forces operators who said, "Yeah, this wasn't so." <laughs> you know, it's like all due respect to Ukraine's Rambo's, um, this this was this looked like a missile attack to us. Well, okay, then that begged the question: What kind of missile could the Ukrainians have shot into Saki Air Base, deep in behind in, in enemy territory, but also s- southern Crimea? Uh, places they haven't had access to or haven't been engaged in any kind of kinetic activity for quite a long time. And, you know, the the most obvious explanation or or given what we know, the Ukrainians are wielding, um, you know, you mentioned HIMARS. Yeah. HIMARS is a platform. Um, It's the ammunition that really counts. And the stuff that we had been sending them had a range of what, 50 kilometers, maybe a little bit more than that. And the United States had made a case Uh, Very adamantly so, we didn't want to give them the stuff that has much longer range, uh, namely the the so-called attackums, because we're worried that they might strike inside Russian Federation territory. Now, that distinction seemed very wishy-washy and legalistic to me. I mean, you could technically stand at the border uh, between Ukraine and Russia with a Glock pistol and fire inside Russian Federation territory, right? But for some reason, attackums was seen as this line of escalation that that could not be crossed. Jake Sullivan at the Aspen Security uh, Forum uh, said that, you know, we're we're very conscious of not sleepwalking into World War Three in terms of our security assistance, et cetera. So, you know, we looked at the footage. Um, I mean, I know you and I have talked about this. You're a professional artillerist. I believe you have a the, the certificate that is conferred on somebody who can do things like measure impact craters and and, and kind of do the post mortem on these kinds of attacks. And our conclusion was looks like a missile. Um, and the easiest missile for them to have used would be attackums, which might have been supplied covertly uh even though the united states has denied doing any such thing uh now i'm not wedded to the idea that it's got to be attackums. another theory um one that i've heard advanced increasingly in recent days and and also seems compelling is that the um i believe it's luch labs or luch uh, the the weapons industry uh in ukraine had been working on a, an adept, adapted form of the neptune anti-ship missile but to turn it into a cruise missile Well, that's interesting. Um, But from what I understand, talking to uh, people who know rocketry and and, and missiles, the problem the Ukrainians had is they don't have the guidance systems for doing for for making their own long range cruise missiles. So where might the guidance systems have come from? Another interesting head scratcher, Right. So I, I don't have answers to this question, but I know that the official explanation, at least early days, you know, special forces commandos, Completely homegrown systems. None of that, none of that passed the sniff test to me. And indeed, now you see, um, you know, I think uh, Defense Secretary Resnikov told the Washington Post it was special forces operators. Uh, but uh, Zelensky, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, wrote a long paper just the other day, published in the Ukrainian press, essentially outlining the strategic plan for 2023. And offhandedly, by the way, he said that. Saki was the result of quote a series of successful missile strikes. Okay, so now you have the commander in chief of Ukraine's armed services saying uh, that this was a missile. What kind of missile was it? And yeah, it's it's just a I, I'm I'm it, it's a Sherlockian case that I've become fixated on. And I know, look, you know, people who do analysis but with a kind of advocacy bent. Are like well, look, man, you know, don't, don't, don't burn their their operational security. Obviously, this is classified and all that. Well, you're yeah, fine, but I actually don't actually. I I think it's wrong strategically to make the case that we shouldn't be advertising Ukraine's more sophisticated capabilities because, you know, it, it terrifies the Russians to know that not only have they got NATO standardized artillery systems, but they not, might now have ammunition that can do a great deal of harm, uh, very, very far away. Still inside Ukraine, not hitting inside Russian Federation territory, as that seems to be the red line for the Biden administration. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just approaching this journalistically as I can. And, and if anybody has any insights and wants to reach out to me, particularly from a Kiev, by all means, do, <laughs> you know, Um but yeah i know i know you know the, the piece that we did got pushed back and people were telling me the crater size were were too wrong or whatever and it must have been i don't know alibaba drones or this that and the other and look all things being equal the the the, the simplest explanation tends to be the correct one and yeah as i say i mean people who served who who do this for a living have said it certainly looks like a missile strike and and i i guess now that's been kind of confirmed by zeluzni unless he's lying i don't know no and i you know
1: i obviously you know we talked early on to it but i think um and there's enough consensus now that you know barring a a change of um you know basically communications and messaging from the united states this might be the best we have for a little while but we're yeah. happy to hear the update. So. updates. Uh, before the yeah, last well, just,
2: and, and just another point on this, you know, I, a, a lot of the commentary, again, I, I think we we still, you know, in the Cold War, this was known as mirror imaging, which is to say, the United States likes to view the behavior of its adversary based on what it would do under the same circumstances, and 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 that was one of the biggest fallacies of the Cold War because the Soviets didn't behave like the Americans would. Uh, they did things that were batshit crazy all the time. They did things that just made no logical sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, it, it's not the Soviet Union anymore, uh, Tandis, but the, the, the Russians do the same thing. And this idea that, well, it, you know, it, it couldn't have been attackums because the Russians would have called us out on it. Bullshit. Bullshit. They would not have done that. Remember, the official explanation is this was an accident. Someone was smoking a little too close to a, a fuel depot or whatever. They denied it, that, that it was a, a, a missile attack at all. So for them to then come back and say, oh, not only was it a missile attack or or, or not only was it a Ukrainian kinetic operation, but they're using, uh, you know, uh, artillery ammunition that can fire, what, three, four hundred kilometers away. What does that do for Rosenborn export and their their sale of S-400 air defense systems abroad? What air defense doing? Nothing because it can't. It cannot actually engage NATO artillery. That's the point. And again one of the one of the reasons I'm I'm still not ready to give up on the the attackums theory completely is put yourself in the in the the position of, you know, the Pentagon policy planners, CIA. We've never seen we've never seen these these uh, NATO systems in active combat against Russian operated Russian military systems before. Ukraine is a proving ground for essentially what a NATO Russian war would look like. Um what would be the intelligence hall from Saki Air Base if it was something that the Americans supplied on the sly while denying they did any such thing? And I'm sorry, but, you know, a lot of people who who haven't reported on national security seem to think that when the U.S. government says, wasn't us, uh, that they're telling the truth. I got news for you. It, It doesn't work that way. I've been doing this for 10 years. I've been lied to my face by people in very, very high ranking positions of power. So, you know, again, all due respect to the OSINT bros, um, you know, the, the cookie doesn't always crumble that way. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes here. And, and again, I, I claim no special knowledge or set of facts. I'm still trying to get to the bottom of it, underscore that point. But um, yeah, I, I just never bought the official explanation of this. I don't think the Russians buy it either. No, I, I, <laughs> I don't think they do either.
1: And I I couldn't, Uh, agree with you more, Michael, they definitely would not want to advertise if it was an American system because not only sales, but also just, you know, of course, the uh, confidence of so many different countries around the world would fall even more so than it has. So before we go to my last question here, we'll open up to the audience. Just remind everyone, of course, share and retweet the space. We're so happy to have Michael here. Uh, He's such a great asset to us to really understanding that sort of uh, specific point where politics and military meet where you know, not a lot of us have worked at this time and really getting to the bottom of so many different important things in regards to this war. So before we go to hands here, uh, Michael, I want to ask you what your thoughts are in the last five days, right? There's been some thoughts that, oh, Kherson uh, failed, so Ukraine shifted to you know Kharkiv. There's some thoughts that it was always a, a feint to draw Russian troops into Kherson. And there's some that are saying now even well, they just took this land in Kharkiv uh, temporarily and it'll soon be recaptured by Russians. What, what are your thoughts about this pretty stunning advance we've seen recently?
2: Yeah, I don't think Kherson was a feint. I think uh, it, it was uh, an active counteroffensive, which is still ongoing, by the way. And there's a lot we don't know about what success or lack thereof the Ukrainians have met with. I, I've been told by sources in Kiev that there have been some problems and some issues. But then again, you see reporting. Um, including in The Economist recently, that uh, suggests that the Ukrainians have not been taking heavy losses and, and there haven't been high casualty figures. I think um, a reporter went to some uh, emergency unit in a hospital in uh, Miklaev, and the surgeon on hand or whoever it was uh, said, yeah, we've been seeing a, a slight uptick in, in, in injuries, but you know, nothing to write home about. So that either suggests maybe the Ukrainians aren't engaging the Russians as actively, or if they are, they're doing quite well. But Harkiv, I think, I think there there is a, a, an aspect of truth to what you say. I wouldn't call it a feint because I think that term has really belongs to Russian trolls um, whenever they feel like, uh, you know, they're losing terribly. It must be some kind of masterminded strategy on the part of uh, the general staff that it's a, it's a feint. You know, we're not actually getting our asses kicked. But I do think there was a, a kind of sly information operation here. So. For weeks and weeks, when I was in Kyiv last in June, I was being told Kherson has to happen before the end of the summer, owing to a lot of reasons, including the, the change in weather, et cetera. So uh, there was a lot of, of, of investment in this. But I do think that part of the strategy was, yeah, this means that the Russians are going to now draw their battalion tactical groups away from other parts on the front line, particularly Donbass, bring them down south because they know the Ukrainians can fight better there and also resupply is going to be more of an issue because you have to travel traverse more of the country more kilometers um saki again was probably a way to divert uh ukrainian uh, sorry russian air power um and make make them have to fly longer for sorties to defend Kherson. so all the while you know Hark- harkiv became increasingly l- less defended defended by by the the occupiers and yeah all of a sudden the, the ukrainians announced this surprise attack now look i'm I'm being very cautious about what I'm seeing because you kind of have to be in this game. And I'm waiting for more visual confirmation. But from everything I've seen and including everything I've seen uh, announced by very credible and reliable journalists in Ukraine, I mean, this is kind of extraordinary. This is this is a a real blitzkrieg by the by the Ukrainians. I mean, the official estimate is they've taken now one hundred thousand I'm sorry, a thousand square kilometers of terrain. Um, You know, yesterday it was we've recaptured land roughly the size of Singapore or New York City. And you don't even have to take what's coming from the Ukrainian government at face value. Just listen to what pro-Russian bloggers and social media commentators are saying. They're turning on each other. They're cannibalizing themselves. uh, They're denouncing their own government and their own military, um, you know, or they're just snorting line after line of copium and saying, again, that that there's nothing to see here, you know. I I I can't even tell what's a parody account from what's just genuine like Votnik stupidity anymore on Twitter. One guy said today that uh, 300 Russian soldiers fought off 10,000, you know, attacking Ukrainians, and t- I, I, it's just it, okay, you know. Whatever gets you to bed at night, big guy. Like fine, but that that to me tells me that you know something major is is in the offing here. And and I mean, look, you, you, it seems that what had been a very static front line for many many months now uh, is incredibly dynamic. And if the Ukrainians keep pressing um, in the direction that they're, they're, they're headed Isium I think is in play. I mean, at this point, look, I don't, I don't even know where they might stop because I don't even know where the Russians are going to be able to kind of fortify their position. And um, you know, if they now pull, pull assets out of herson to go back to Donetsk uh, and Lugansk, well, what is that going to do for the counteroffensive down south? So I think this was just very masterfully planned by the Ukrainians. And look, it it, it even doesn't really matter at the end of the day how much terrain. The political optics of this are very good, right? Um, You know, I I tweeted the other day or, or, or just yesterday, in fact, I suspect security assistance, which has always been brokered on proof of concept by the West, right? Look at the stuff we've given them in the last two months. These are things that I mean, back in January, February, the Ukrainians were begging for and, you know, I was being told no way, no how they can't use it. We can't afford to give it to them. What if this falls into the Russians hands? Uh, It's going to be a huge, uh, you know, intelligence windfall for them, et cetera, et cetera. And now they've shown not only can they wield these weapons systems effectively, um, they are sticking to their end of the bargain in terms of not using them to, to hit inside Russia. So they show a great deal of restraint and discipline um and you know maybe it's time to expand the shopping list or, or to start ticking more items off the shopping list rather give them the kind of things that they've been asking for for a while so already you know you're now beginning to see you know norwegian um hellfire missiles land you know the portable land-based variety being sent uh, i know that we've already sent nasam air defense systems uh again if they don't already have attack might they get it in future well, if I was in the Pentagon or Christ, even if I was Jake Sullivan at this point, I would say, honestly, uh, you know, I trust them to use that kind of ammo. I mean, they're, they're, they're clearly very gung ho about retaking Crimea, or at least they're, they're telegraphing that that fact. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think that um, this was the kind of thing they had to do. They had to show that they can go on the offensive and succeed. And they have done that. I mean, with a bullet. Really, so I, it, you know, it's it's a very important milestone in the war for that for that reason.
0: Cj, if you don't mind, um, first and foremost, yet again, uh, Michael, thank you very much for sharing this with us, and I think it's very important. And what you just highlighted goes through the whole timeline and showcases how the coalition of the willing is now actually waking up to the fact that the Ukrainians should always have been trusted, as yes. many of the founders of this space who have been serving officers or are serving officers of the Canadian Armed Forces have been telling them because uh, for example, Colonel Melanie Lake uh, had been for 18 months prior to uh, the outbreak of this war, the last commander of Operation Unifier, which um, assisted in training, guidance, uh, trained more than 36,000 members of staff Uh, officers, NCOs, special forces, um, for about seven and a half years in Ukraine. And uh, as uh, Melanie always stresses, both sides learn from each other. And um, she found it extremely engaging. When she arrived, she said, and that confirms what I think you will have read also from other parties already, that um, the Ukrainian special forces and part of their officer corps had already developed to a point that they were more than equal to a Western army in Western Europe. And that some of their capabilities were very, very much geared to that kind of uh, decision-making, which we require of our younger officers and specifically of our NCO Corps. Yep. And that therefore they were in a completely different mindset, state of preparation and anticipation also of what could occur and what they should be doing as a modern, what I would call, Western army. And I think you you just highlighted that this trust, unfortunately, um, had not been extended or had not been given to them by a number of the politicians, less so the defence establishment. I think that Secretary Austin, as a solid warrior and, by the way, a compatriot of CJ's, um, certainly understood this.
2: Yeah. Well, I think also fundamentally the president of the United States understands this in a way that a lot of his um, advisors do not. I mean, I can tell you I heard it from somebody fairly high up in the administration um, who is personally close to President Biden that, you know, the NSC does what the NSC does. Um, they take their sort of on paper assessments um, and say, well, this is how things can go wrong. This is why we shouldn't do X, Y and Z. And, you know, eventually this works its way to the president's desk. And he says, look, uh, I disagree. I think that's being overly cautious. And as you just said, you know, nothing succeeds like success. The Ukrainians have shown that they can defy expectation time and time again. And so, you know, look, I I, I can be critical of, of what the United States failed to do prior to the invasion. You know, I mean, if we had copper bottom proof that the Russians were coming in down to the very date and hour, we should have been equipping the Ukrainians with with more than just javelins, frankly, and and we certainly should have just been doing more than preparing them to fight um, an insurgency or some kind of guerrilla campaign premised on the, the belief that their conventional capability was going to be completely destroyed. Uh, that said, um, you know, as I, I mentioned just a few moments ago, what they get, what they they've been getting today are the kind of things that I was told they'd never get. Uh, so what they'll get tomorrow are probably things that we're, we're being told they, they simply can't use today. Um, and yeah, I quite agree. I, I've talked to a lot of people. I mean, who are either in, you know, NATO allied countries or even in the United States, who've been rotated in and out of Ukraine for even before, frankly, uh, 2014, going back to about 2010, who have always come away impressed by the Ukrainian um, uh, adaptability to new, um, uh, you know, to, to, to Western uh, military exercises to, I mean, if you, if you look at the reporting, for instance, on their absorption of NATO equipment, you know, you, you hear an estimate like, oh, it'll take them, what, I'm making this up, six or seven weeks to learn how to use HIMARS. And then it ends up taking them four. Why? Because they're not sitting around the base in Germany, you know, drinking beer and having a laugh. I mean, they're not taking lunch breaks. They're there to learn. And again, this comes back to this is an existential thing for them. We in the West, it's very easy from a faraway country to look on this crisis as a game of of or or some kind of, you know, abstract uh, phenomenon to Ukrainians. It's not this is this is it affects every single person in the country um, because every person in the country knows somebody who's been killed or, uh, you know, lost their home is now internally or externally displaced. And, you know, necessity has proven to be, I think, the the, the greatest virtue for them uh, at all levels. Again, coming back to the information operations, um, their sort of troll game on Twitter uh, to the way that they can can wield weaponry.
0: Let me go back to the one point you just highlighted about the weaponry, which may have been decided already in Rumsdai, but not yet communicated. Uh, I find it always quite charming to see how. Uh, the various layers of journalism um fail to understand what actually is being communicated and why certain things are not being said. You even highlighted that you have news for people who actually are still so naive as to believe everything they're being told. Now our yeah. Finnish friends our Finnish friends do the best I mean the best possible press conferences one could ever do, but that obviously goes hand in hand with their yeah. general character. They go out there and say, Well, we've decided to give another 500 million of eight. And that's where it ends. Right. And the next question is answered with, well, we just said what we have to say. Thank you. Bye. And turn around. That is actually quite charming from my point of view. and, And it is very conducive because why would we have to, in the public, know all of this? Why should we expect to know this? I mean, unless, of course, we were to think that this is just, you know, kind of a conflict as opposed to a real war. This is where I would have challenged now, um, and I think you tend to agree with this, that the overall communication of the leaders in the West is not quite conducive for the public to understand that we are at war.
2: Yeah, and I think there's another element at play here, too. And, and, you know, look, I hope somebody really does a review of the military analytical community and how just completely horribly wrong they were about how this was going to play out. Um, And when that review is done, I I hope it really makes a lot of people, uh, many of whom still for some unknown reason to myself, command a great deal of respect and authority, or at least seemingly so online, maybe offline it's a different story, but you know, there's a, a kind of arrogance of expertise um, you know, I've seen long, long Twitter threads by people who are writing articles saying, you know, arming Ukraine doesn't matter because they're, you know, they're going to be they're going to lose their sovereignty in, in days. And they do a long thread explaining why they were wrong. And then they come up with the conclusion. Actually, I wasn't wrong. You know, it's just, oh, the Russians didn't fight the way I told them to. That's their, I mean, what, what 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 is that? You know, it's it just it, a complete and utter failure of imagination. And look, I mean, I, I go into this thing and I continue to go into this thing saying, I don't know anything. like, I have to find out I'm I'm dead set to find out what is actually taking place. I don't read foreign affairs. I don't read foreign policy magazine anymore. I don't read the New York Times op ed page. And I was thinking just today, how many how many how many drafts are open on people's, you know, laptops right now, with headlines like, here's where the war gets complicated, or Oh, gee, now it's time that you know, because her hasn't been recaptured it's time for ukraine to cut a deal with russia i mean again people get ahead of their skis all the time you know and uh i can only i can only advise you know it's hard enough trying to apprehend what's taking place in real time much less much less uh, making these kind of grandiose predictions for even the short-term future I, i think it's folly you know and and i think unfortunately a lot of people still haven't gotten over being so badly wrong about this um and it's 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 continuing to affect our ability to come up with good policy to think creatively i mean you know i never worked in government and i never planned to but you know i've seen the way bureaucrats go about their job i see the way that you know they're fearful of of putting a foot wrong taking risks well the ukrainians they don't have any of these compunctions because again they can't afford to So they manage to do things that they're told all the time they simply cannot because they they don't have the capability to do. Um, And yet we still treat them um, in a very condescending and, and orientalist manner. I mean, there are people I know who who go on television who are great proponents of President Zelensky and stalwart defenders of Ukraine and then privately will tell me, oh, God, this is such a corrupt country. You know, the military doesn't know what they're doing you know, I, I've heard people refer to generals in the Ukrainian uh, army as morons, uh, all, all behind their backs, by the way, not out in public. Right. Out in public, it's, you know, the the, the, the blue and gold standard on Twitter and, uh, you know, hashtag and all this stuff. So I think there's a great deal of condescension and contempt that needs to be eradicated from people who are working this file. I mean, you know, I go to Ukraine regularly because i feel like it's the capital of the free world i feel like it's where it's a place where where, where people have a sense of priority and they're not obsessed with navel gazing and penny anti culture war bullshit um for them it's life and death and it, it it's a shot in the arm to me and i feel like maybe more people need to experience that to understand exactly what's at stake here and why the ukrainians can indeed be trusted in ways that you know we've been told for years they cannot
0: Well, it is a statement in the vein of Hemingway, isn't it? The shot in the arm that uh, both the adrenaline and the end released, as we would call them today, in battle and in existential crises do focus your mind. War is a great crystallizer and a Mm -hmm. great normalizer also. And that is what people obviously have failed to have had for quite some time because they did not understand the impact of those wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Don't want to go right. too much into that political political minefield, but let's maybe reel back to the one point as to the announcements. Now, when asked at uh, the press at Rammstein, where, by the way, uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin did what um, we here in the space had advocated for quite some time, since at least mid-March, that he eviscerated a very unruly and slightly gloom and doomy and Russian narrative-infused tusks, uh propagating Reuters question, which uh, can only be dismissed as something utterly ludicrous and you just highlighted it. They had their headline and their text written. They just wanted the confirmation that Austin could somehow be ambiguous in addressing the question as to whether this offensive would actually be slow and tired and not working. And then he just ripped into that reporter. That was grand. Yeah. It was fantastic. Loved it. I mean, everybody here in this space, trust me, you have about 1,300 people now listening actively directly on, on Twitter, most of whom are regular listeners who have been with us for many months. Many of them have served. Many of them are experts in their field, whether that is energy or economics, finance, uh, logistics. It doesn't really matter. And they've been from more walks of life across most NATO nations or free nations. We don't take this so lightly here. I think at that point in time when that presser was running, and we, of course, as always, 24-7, were live, I saw a level of enthusiasm breaking out here you can't imagine. Yeah, But that's not the point I wanted to make. Lloyd Austin says, upon the request of a German journalist, let me paraphrase and summarize this, as to what about those M1 Abrams and Leopard 2s? And he simply said it's a work in progress. Those are those weapons we just indicated earlier. What about the F sixteens?
2: I mean, also a work asked. in progress. He was not Also a work in progress. I mean, they will get F sixteens. I know I know I just said before, don't make predictions, but okay, I'm making a prediction. Eventually Ukraine's Air Force will be equipped with F sixteens. Full stop. Absolutely. One hundred percent. And already I, I can tell you that there are, you know, planners in poland who are working this very assiduously now so again can you imagine seven months ago f-16s to ukraine (laughs) you know they, they we couldn't even give them mig 29s from poland because members of the polish cabinet shot their mouths off about something that was supposed to be covert they ended up getting the mig 29s i believe but probably again in in a roundabout manner anyway i mean look um as i say the the expectations um have been so upended uh, and even for myself, look, I, I I came away from that trip to Kiev thinking, my God, I mean, are the Ukrainians, you know, in for a surprise? I mean, what, what I've never seen. I, I thought it was it was the, the recourse of the ostrich, you know, that nobody wants to acknowledge what's going to happen. But they they were my tutor. They said, you know, he wouldn't do it because he's not that stupid. Well, it turns out he is that stupid, but he couldn't do it. And they were right about that. Um, and look, this is not to say that there aren't I mean, I could I could you know, tomorrow decide to pivot to here are all the problems with Ukraine from the economic sector to civil society to the government sector. I could just bang on about that. But it's not for me. It's, it, I mean, it, it, it's beside the point. It's not the priority. The priority is win the war. Priority is help them keep their sovereignty and their independence. And, you know, essentially, I mean, I think I know President Biden got very upset with Lloyd Austin when he I forget who he said it to in the press. You know, our, our strategic objective is to ensure that Russia doesn't have the capability to do this again in the midterm. Um, and that was characterized as a gaffe. That's not a gaffe. That's just logic. And you it's know. the
0: stated aim in the national security policy, by the way. As well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I you know, like what 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 the the, the, the kind of pro-Russian trolls and the tankies of the world um, think the United States is doing. I only hope the United States does, <laughs> you know, truly. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, if, if you now understand what this regime is in Moscow, and I think fortunately, by and large, the general population of the West does understand it. Um, of course, the political classes, the, you know, bureaucracies will come up with rationalizations or ways to mischaracterize things, but but the man in the street knows what Putin is. Why on earth would you want to allow Russia to save face or to come away with this with, uh, you know, a war machine that could possibly threaten one of the frontier states, uh, not just in the mid term future, but in the long term future, you know, go to the Baltic states, go to go to the smaller countries that join NATO because they need collective security, because they could not do with a population of one point three million, such as in Estonia, they could not do what Ukraine has managed to do. Um, Ask them. You know, how do you so, see this shaking out or, 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 you know, what about visa bans? What about labeling Russia state-sponsored terrorism? What about all... You get very different answers from what you you, you, you you get in Washington and and Paris, perhaps less so in London these days. Michael, I'm based in Tallinn. You're based in Tallinn. Oh, OK. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm the
0: home of the CCD, COA uh, of NATO, the cyber headquarter, the home of the free, the home of the... People who have been donating the highest level of their GDP and uh, a hell of a lot of material to Ukraine. And uh, this afternoon, as you quite rightly said, we had um, Chris Tups, uh who runs um, um, the Eastern podcast, um, on our space yet again. We have a lot of people here from Finland, from the Baltics. Yeah, Many people who have privately in their organizations supported, donated, arranged cars. Work in government, in finance, in the military, um, and they the the level of support we have from all of Northern Europe down to Romania, because the people know they can read Putin better than anybody else. And you said it: the the average John and Jane Doe in
2: the street do get it better than the bureaucrats. But, but also, you know, I, I remember I remember the kind of you know the the the, the sort of sniveling contempt and condescension. Uh, certainly coming out of the American press corps when uh, the late Donald Rumsfeld used the term New Europe. Well, I didn't think he was off base at all um, in in kind of making that bifurcation between the old and the new. And in fact, I mean, I've spent the last 10 years traveling through much of New Europe um, and seeing exactly what I think he meant, um, which is a, a far more I mean, obviously, there has been backsliding in some of these countries, including Poland uh, and Hungary and so on. But by and large, as you say, uh, the newer members to the European Union and especially to NATO, um, for them, things that we now treat as sort of relics of a bygone era or we tend to ironize, you know, the free world, liberal democracy, uh, you know, again, this is no joking matter. This is not something that, that that. they they do memes about on Twitter um because for them it's everything and it and, and within living memory they did not have mm. it and they know then therefore the cost of losing it which Absolutely. I think a lot of Americans do not
0: Thomas Sendrick Ilves uh the former president I mean obviously he he was born in North America and then served Estonia uh as a not just
2: North America man New Jersey. Don't mess with the Jersey boy <laughs>
0: Well, he is a former neighbor of ours, so on the same street on Pick, and uh, obviously he was a, say, well-serving liberal president of the country, and uh, he is one of the staunchest defenders of Ukraine, because it matters to him a great deal, because Estonia, his original home, even if he wasn't born there, and he was only not born there for one reason, is the Soviet Empire, with its genocide of the people in the Baltics, forced Families to emigrate, but before we go there, very quick question. We had hundreds, literally hundreds, of questions and feedback. I hope you have a little bit of time for us.
2: I have a little bit of time for you. Then I have to write about the Queen, which I never—words I never thought I would say in my life. But there you have.
0: Well, it. well, I can give you one for that. As you said earlier, before I go to our friend uh, John Red, very quickly, the Queen was the one supposedly it was quoted yet again because Plunkett came out, the Home Secretary, who highlighted that he had to apologize to the Queen that his dog was barking at an official reception where Mr. Putin was there roundabouts and where she then quipped, what? The dogs have an instinct.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Putin, who managed to convince Angela Merkel that Nord Stream 2 was good, but at one of their earliest meetings, I think he brought his was it a German Shepherd? No, it couldn't have been that yes. on the nose, no, it was it? It was a German Shepherd, right? Knowing that universe, she has a East fear. An yep. <laughs> East German Shepherd, even worse. Knowing that she's got a, a deep fear of, of dogs, which I can't understand. That, that's another mark against her, as far as I'm concerned. It should have been a, a telling sign to Western intelligence that the German Chancellor doesn't like puppies. But anyway... Well, it goes no, turn it so over further. to the questions. He, he, managed, have
0: to he, he had managed to convince, don't forget, Gerhard Schröder beforehand, and Mr. Frank Walter Steinmeier and Olaf Scholz, as general secretary of the Social Democrats, that Nordstrom one is perfect and absolute must. But I don't even want to go there because they could all be. The Germans say, put them all in in a sack and hit them from the outside. You will always hit the right one. John. <laughs>
3: Thank you very much, Axel, and thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Um, I-, I wanted to ask you, given your background uh, studying the GRU, um, clearly it's been widely spoken about and written in excruciating detail regarding the FSB's many failures prior to the invasion beginning on February twenty-fourth. You know, whether it be intelligence collection, preparing the battlefield, recruiting local collaborators, they you know their efforts failed enormously uh, across the board um do we have any insight into how effective gru operations or even svr operations were you know preparing for february 24th
2: well i mean most of the reporting i've seen and and if you consult people like andrei soldatov you um the line you get is that this was really the fsb and it was the fsb fifth service because you know, keep in mind, I think when when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, a lot of the intelligence work that went into um, kind of preparing the, the the ground for that invasion was done by the FSB because to to, to, to Putin and to the Soloviki, they they consider these countries to be not just the near abroad, but essentially spiritually part of Russia in a sense. So for them, it was a domestic issue. It wasn't a foreign one. And you look at where the GRU has been sent. Over the last decade, uh, the UK, um, Bulgaria, um, the Czech Republic, the Netherlands. I mean, they, they are the traveling roadshow of Russian intelligence. Right. Uh, and they do this the sort of the, the kind of a, a battering ram of operations, whereas the SVR is more into either running agents or just pure intelligence gathering. Um, so now evidently because uh beseda whether or not he's under house arrest or has been disgraced i I don't know there's been kind of contradictory stuff coming out on that but uh it does seem that this file has been taken away from the fsb and now handed to the gru i mean georgia was a nadir uh in the fortunes of uh military intelligence uh and i think uh, the the service has spent the last decade plus building back up their capabilities. And I know that, you know, Crimea was largely a GRU operation, and that went flawlessly uh, for the Russians, at least as as Putin sees it. So I think, um, and, and this is the kind of thing that they're essentially meant to do. I mean, they are the military intelligence service. It stands to reason they would be more involved in the war effort. But, you know, you can have the best intelligence service in the world, and it doesn't mean anything if your army is crap, your logistics don't work, Your equipment is breaking down. You're running out of fuel. The morale of your soldiers is in the toilet. Uh, So I I don't see the GRU getting involved here being any kind of game changer for the Russians.
0: I think John had a follow-up observation before we go to um, Antti from Finland and Peter Doran, who sits somewhere in the Beltway uh, at this point in time, I think. Um, John, you had an observation which we had beforehand made many times when looking at uh, those wonderful high mass systems and their rear
3: oh yes yeah. so the uh, the enclosures or the pods as they're commonly known for uh, gimlers and Attackums. after much digging i was finally able to find a halfway decent image of the rear panel of a standard Attackums enclosure and it turns out um it is visually distinct from the rear panel, or I guess lack thereof, on a Gimler's enclosure. Um, so uh, I, it is possible to visually tell them apart by looking at the rear of the enclosure. It's difficult because the Attacum's enclosure is designed to look like a Gimler's enclosure, but right. it is doable.
2: Well, that's that's exactly what Thomas uh, Thiner, who is an artillery specialist who's in the Italian Army, I mean, I, I, it, it, it's it's kind of fascinating the granular level of detail that he's got on this. But it, he essentially said that, right? The 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 pod for all HIMARS is, is basically the same size, but you know, with the the, the ammunition that we're giving them now, there's six missiles. An attackum is only you can only fit one of those missiles in the same HIMARS pod. But I guess because the attackum, the attackums is is more powerful and is longer range there's a kind of Maskarovka going on with Lockheed Martin where they, they want to hide it in the field. So what they do is that the panel that they put on the back either is a, some kind of obstruction where you can't even see anything, or they literally paint on six cylinders to make it look like they're carrying the standard ammunition. So one yeah, of the, but the, the, reasons, shadow,
0: the shadow of the
2: flap is different and that's what we detected. Right. And, and so, you know, James and I, one of the, the, the bits of data that, contributed to our theory that this could be an attack and strike on saki was we managed to geolo- geolocate a high mars in southern ukraine actually north of crimea tellingly enough that had this pot or this this obstruction on the back and thomas said well that's usually i mean when when these things come out of the factory line and when they're they're shipped from camden arkansas the lockheed martin facility that manufactures them um this is what they do for the attack and uh so yeah i mean look that, that is that just positive? no uh could it be that the united states decided the standard ammunition for the HIMARS that we are providing ukraine let's start covering it up the way we would attack them or or i think even the the, the prism missile which is the, basically attack them on steroids they do the same thing sure but then i don't understand why they would do that because um high in and of themselves are targets for the russians so who cares what you're painting on the back of the pod. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense unless you want to hide what these things are really, what the kind of payload that they're carrying. So I don't know. I mean, I, look, I I've been told no way, no how it's a hundred percent. It's not attackums, But you know, I don't think people really know what they're talking about unless they have access to classified intelligence and all due respect, the best osin bros on Twitter do not. And I don't either. So it, it, it's why I, I just, I'm, I'm still skeptical of, of, you know, the idea that it's uh It's anything else.
0: Well, we had um, both uh, General McRyan, as well as Ben Hodges here regularly, and both friends of the program. The last time um, General Hodges was with us, he said specifically, and this was directly after these attacks, uh, he said, well, he has himself argued many times for the attackums to be given and publicly stated that they were to be given or were given. Yeah. However, that the administration denied it. Mm-hmm. He then took a pause, and you can listen to it, and just, eh, one and a half sentences later, he says, but he does like the results.
2: Right. Well, And McGrind you know...
0: said the very same thing in a different, even more incisive way. I think if you're not completely out of the world, you do understand what's going on.
2: Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> I I was getting some very interesting and cagey responses from very senior Ukrainian officials when I put this to them. Um, One of them, and this doesn't necessarily mean anything, but one of the responses was something along the lines of, you know, sorry, your government has told us we can't discuss stuff like this. So, okay. I mean, again, the Ukrainians could be playing games with me. You know, let this American journalist think that we have attackums because then he'll go write a story suggesting that we do. And that'll scare the piss out of the Russians. Who knows? Uh, but again, you know, I, I am not convinced uh, by American denials. And also, there's been some interesting press responses um, from the Pentagon. I, I, I think I can't remember who it was who was asked. And um, the line was something like, uh, you know, well, the Ukrainians don't need these things. I'm sure they do. Why would you say that? That's that's just idiotic. Of course, they need attack ems. It's your the, the official line is you don't want to give them. OK, uh, then another response was. Well, we have no indication that they used any American-made product or, or weapon or ammunition mm. on the attack. No, no, no. They said any, no any indication. we gave them. Right, no any indication. And by products. the way, you know, look, I, I, I query CIA guys who used to do covert security assistance, and I said, would a Pentagon flack lie? Answer, yes. Mm-hmm. Would a Pentagon flack even know about stuff like this being sent over? Answer, no. <laughs> so either way, I mean – You know, outright denials are they mean nothing coming from the U.S. government because we do this stuff all the time. Fog of war. It's war. Exactly. And by the way, I I don't fault them for this. I mean, again, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm looking for the truth. I think it's in the public interest to find out the truth. I also I have measured, and you know, I, to my mind, if I thought this was going to really deleteriously harm Ukraine's security or it, it hinder its war effort in any way, I wouldn't be a dog with a bone on the story. I happen to think that if it were to come out or if it were to be established that Ukraine has got these uh, these systems, um, that would be a net positive for them. In fact, I, I would suspect I would put good money on it that if they do have them. Uh, and they were told by the americans don't you dare disclose that you have them most of the ukrainians think that's a that's a mistake a strategic mistake they would love to to announce from the rooftops they got look at the way they they talk about all the other kit that's been sent over
0: ecstatically we remain in agreement i think this is this it comes back to what you said about trust beforehand yep and it, it still is this feeling that the People in this administration, as well as people in certain Western governments being part of that coalition of the willing or the ones who are to be drawn to the water, whoever they are. And I think we know who they are, that somehow they still don't quite trust that this should be done because maybe, maybe, just maybe Putin may not like it. And maybe you should, should come to a deal. And that's, I think, where the main mistake is. If you allow me, we have questions from Auntie from Finland and from Peter Doran, if you, if you don't mind. Auntie.
3: Thank you, uh, thank you much, so much, Michael, for uh, for coming here. You do do really really excellent work, and uh, I wanted to ask you that uh, during this war, we've seen some uh, exceptional actions from uh, uh, people all all over the world, like uh, Benjamin Wittes and his merry band in uh, in Washington DC projecting uh, Russian war crimes on the. Uh, a facade of the uh, Russian embassy and uh, then uh, another great example is is NAFO. C- could you have in your wildest dreams imagined uh, something like this happening?
2: No and I'm so glad that it has and I am so glad that the United States government has absolutely nothing to do with it because if they did it would have been a abject cringeworthy failure um, I was in Lithuania and I want to say 2015 or 2016 And I had a briefing by their MOD. Um, But before that briefing, I had met with one of the founders of the Lithuanian Elves. So the elves were just a collective of civil society actors and patriots who decided to band together uh, using I forget what platform and essentially push back on Russian trolls. Um, And they succeeded, you know. Well beyond what anyone could have anticipated. And I remember asking Lithuania's MOD at the time, you know, what's your relationship with the elves? And they said, there is none. And we want to keep it that way, because the minute the government gets involved, it all turns to shit. So, you know, I, I, I absolutely love it. I find it hysterical when I see, you know, the Votniks and the, 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 the tankies on Twitter accusing the CIA of doing NAFO. I mean, if the CIA could do NAFO all of your conspiracy theories about what the United States is capable of would be true. <laughs> you know, I don't think, honestly, and, and I'm sure the CIA would admit that, um, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's it's remarkable. And I interviewed early on um, Kama and uh, Matt, you know, Matt is a, a, a tankist and served in Afghanistan. And I think his tank got blown up. Um, and uh, you know, I said, how did this come about? And they said, honestly, it's just, we were shit posting and then other people saw us and they started shit posting. And then I forget the, the exact precise origin of the, um, the, the dog avatar, but it just became this kind of cottage industry. And I, you know, on discord, I, I've been allowed into that forum. Um, and I, I see the people who are involved and the way they discuss it and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, and it it is so set the cat amongst the pigeons with the russians and their surrogates and agents of influence that i mean i just i piss myself laughing all the time um humor works humor does work humor does and the, the thing about it is the it's the anarchic uncontrollable and uncontrolled aspect to it so that's the thing if this were done by some ministry of defense or some intelligence service it would not be as chaotically brilliant um and 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 that's i i think yeah just i believe, leave him alone and, and let him get on with it i mean i i now i'm seeing people like posting like OnlyFans account there's like fella pornography that that, that has started with this thing it's it's i don't know I, I, now now and nafo is getting a little bit sort of rock and roll and maybe a little too off the wall for, for for my taste but yeah it's it's just it's yeah i i i have nothing but good things to say about it um and my, everyone in my family, including my newborn nephew, uh, is a fella. So I, that was my my gift to him on his birthday. Um, you will see
0: on the panel, if you look at your screen, obviously a large agglomeration of that. And, uh, I mean, there's a couple of serious and silly people here, too, but there's a lot of fellas. If you don't mind, Michael, I would go on to Peter Doran. Sure. And then afterwards to Imperius and then. Um,
4: Uh, Axel, uh, you broke out. Okay. Uh, Michael, great to see you on, on the space. It's, it's great to have you here. Uh, I'm sure you're having a good time, but this has been one of the really innovative efforts to push back on Russian disinformation, uh, since the start of the war. And I'm sure you know, but, uh, the Maria report has been broadcasting 24-7 since February 23rd, the night of, uh, and they haven't stopped. So it's great to have you here, my friend.
2: Great to be here and nice to, uh, finally meet you, I guess, virtually. I know we follow each other on Twitter.
4: Michael, I've got two questions for you, because um, I I hope actually you'll indulge me, but I think they're both very pertinent. One's on uh, Disinfo, and the other is on U.S. policy. Uh, You were talking about how effective the NAFO fellas have been because it was so dispersed, because a Ministry of Defense was not in command of it. Uh, We've had a debate on this space for a very long time now asking the question, uh, has Russia been effective in its info war against the West, in its spin, it, confusion uh, against the West uh, in support of its uh, you know, objectives in Ukraine? On this space, we've had people from uh, Africa, from Latin America come on, and they literally just repeat rote and verse uh, Russian talking points. Now, this space is very good at dispelling those points, uh, but here, you know, here's my first question, man. Why was it that we thought Russia was very good at disinfo from 2014 onwards, but in 2022 the wheels, from my perspective, seem to have come off the
2: car? What's going on on the Russian side?
4: What do you, what's your take?
2: I think this war is is what's going on, and that's what screwed them up. I mean, I know I, I can tell you the GRU will acknowledge, so Voce, that they've lost the information war, which is good because they've been doing pretty well thus far. I mean, even going back to 2014. What happened in Donbass? Well, it's all very murky, isn't it? You know, when you have the New York Times using terms like civil war, you know that you've you know, you haven't really seized the narrative, as it were. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is, again, to the credit of this administration. Pounding this drum, leaking the intelligence, doing so in an almost unseemly manner to an extent, um, where if they had been wrong about this, game over right after Iraq. Forget it. Nobody would take what was coming out of the ic seriously but they got it they were not just right they were spot on and precise and it really just kind of undercut what the russians were cooking up i mean it preempted their their um sort of false flag provocations their their casus belli whatever you want to call it um and the other side of it is look i mean the symbolism of what russia has degenerated into i mean everything from the z insignia to these fascistic rallies i mean all the way down to the level of small school children it really is creepy and it's creepy in a way that's that's hard to cover up and it's hard to deny and you know i was worried early on that attempts to try and obfuscate or deny atrocities such as the maria paul theater bombing uh the railway bombing uh in donbass uh you know uh I'm going to take your pick. There have been so many. I was really, Bucha, I was worried that, that the Russians would make headway, but they, they didn't. Um, and they didn't for the simple fact that, you know, you had a, a preponderance of people on the ground who were doing the, the credible reporting. Uh, you had really good open source intelligence showing before and after images. Uh, and also, they just, you know, I mean, I know that the, the global south is not with the West on this, but the West really did unite around this cause and you know yes i know i I know all the the caveats on that you know the squishiness of the french from time to time germany's will we won't we send them things but by and large i have been pleasantly surprised that european unity on ukraine has held uh even i mean victor orban you know who's a shakedown artist with the european union hasn't vetoed sanctions uh no i mean he's extracted plenty from from brussels in exchange for it but still um, it's kind of remarkable and and look i think you know another term that, that hasn't come up uh unlike state sponsor of terrorism or state terrorism is genocide um and when you see credible scholars um eugene finkel uh timothy snyder using the g word with respect to this it really is a game changer um and it's 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 something that again it's 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 in the heart of europe it's the largest land war since world war ii it's not it's not possible to to not pay attention to it or to look the other way or to deny what's what's going on. And so, you know, to that extent, I'm, I'm gratified. Now, the thing that worries me, uh, Peter, is, you know, whether the United States and, you know, I was in as I mentioned, I was in Estonia a few months ago and I interviewed Prime Minister Callas. And I asked her pointedly, I said, look, could 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 you and the other allies in Europe? Um, sort of hold the fort down? I mean, could you could you handle security assistance alone if the U.S., say, elected a president who decided, well, screw this, we, we should be building roads in America and not sending HIMARS to Ukraine? And her answer was no, we couldn't. So this could all go turn around very, very quickly and dramatically based on the political landscape here. But so far, so good, I have to say.
4: I, I see what you did there, Michael, and uh, I, respect, uh, I respect the point. Axel, if uh, you will allow me just to ask one more question, Michael. Sure. Do you think that we're doing enough uh, from the policy side? Uh, we keep talking in this space about how, the imperative that Ukraine must win. Uh, that's a phrase that many in the current administration will run away from. They might say Russia must lose. Uh, they might say other phrases, but they really – I don't believe they have committed to the – at the NSD level – I don't believe they have committed to the concept Ukraine must win. Uh, if you could provide some advice as to how the administration could improve uh, its standing to strengthen its policy position. You mentioned the attackums. Why are we being so afraid of that? Uh, if you could provide some advice uh, to the administration, what would it be to strengthen our policy position from the U.S. side?
2: I think there's a, a variety of factors here. Um Obviously, there's a, a great deal of PTSD from the wars in the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was this administration's doing. Um, and however they choose to spin it or slice it, I mean, that was a, a calamity that nobody could deny. Um, and I think the, 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 the tentativeness, the, the caution going into this, uh, you know, a lot of it was due to worrying about how America might fuck something else up. And in this case, in the heart of Europe, um, the good news, as I mentioned, though, is you know one thing about Biden—he doesn't really care about the Middle East, but he is a transatlanticist. I mean, he believes in Europe whole and free. He's a cold warrior, and I think he sees things in, with a kind of moral clarity that a lot of his policy advisors and his his specialists perhaps do not. Uh, in terms of how to advise them, look, I don't know. Um, I, I really don't, and in a way, I don't care. I mean, I do care, but I, it's it's not my it's not my mission in life to explain to the government why they should be doing things that they're not. I've I've gone down that road before and there lies only heartache and demoralization as best I can do is explain what is happening and why it's happening. And I think, you know, the short and perhaps non nuanced answer to your question is Ukraine winning is, is one way I think that Ukraine can demonstrate to the U S that, it should be allowed to further win. In other words, what they're doing now, if they can continue it, um, that will only engender more goodwill, as I said earlier, uh, increased security assistance. And and, and another sort of component of this is, you know, Russia broadly, in terms of their propaganda, going back not even with respect to 2014 and the, the first Ukraine crisis, but going back generations, decades, has has really instrumentalized this notion of if you provoke us, it's World War Three. They do this on an hourly basis on Russian state TV.
4: We uh, have that question
2: here in this space, Michael. We People have come that, into that the question state in this space. Yeah. You know, it trends on Twitter. Uh, you know, Commander Zelu- General Zeluzhny in his article mentioned that we, we mustn't discount the possibility of tactical nuclear weapons being used in Ukraine, which is, again, a very... Um, uh standard and um you know well trod line on on how this conflict could evolve or deteriorate very quickly but it created global headlines because he said it out loud or he put it in a paper um again we're you know and, and that's not to say we shouldn't be afraid of escalation but there's a lot of data that we can work with now um go back seven months go back even seven weeks Things we were told that would lead the Russians to do X, Y and Z uh, led them to do nothing or to even deny that the thing that was supposed to excite them or provoke them had even happened. Again, I come to Saki Airbase. So I think what we've seen is we escalate and rather than Russia, you know, taking us to DEFCON 1, they do fuck all. Well, that that that's interesting, you know, from from an empirical point of view, it shows us that. Perhaps there is more wiggle room here. There is more maneuverability than we've been led to believe. Um, I remember very distinctly, you know, being told that, oh, if, if the U.S. does more to intervene in Syria, not against ISIS, but against the Assad regime and its manifold proxies. Well, you know, this is and now the Russians are in there. It's going to lead to World War Three. That's why we had the deconfliction mechanism with the Russian Air Force and Syrian skies. OK, well, what happened in 2018? Um, the Wagner group. In conjunction with uh, Iranian militias and Syrian militias, and probably Syrian conventional troops, decided to make a play for the Conoco gas plant uh, in Deir-Zor. Uh The United States told them repeatedly, "Stand down, stand down. If you don't, we'll open fire." They didn't stand down. The United States opened fire. Um, I mean, attack helicopters, uh, you know, warplanes. It was it was Stalingrad. Uh, according total to Wagner, exactly. total annihilation, uh, t- as many as two to three hundred Russian mercenaries turned into hamburger meat in the desert. Where's World War Three? M.O.D. in Moscow. Didn't happen. Russian foreign ministry. Uh, you know, that wasn't us. Uh, those were guys on vacation in Syria. Nothing to do with us. Total plausible deniability. OK, another interesting data point. <laughs> You you can engage Russian forces, however you want to dress them up. PNC. I mean, Wagner is a cut out of the GRU. Let's be clear. So this was this was these are state actors at this point. You can engage them in a certain manner, and it's not going to precipitate a major confrontation with Russia. Uh, and that's not to say we should be stupid or foolhardy. I, 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 I don't want to be misleading here in terms of what I'm, I'm advocating or suggesting. But I think the learning curve has been steep but you know it it, it 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 does exist the united states now realizes that it can take certain gloves off and get away with it good good keep taking them off so michael, advocating uh, a little bit actual... more
0: pat- sorry peter you're yep. michael just highlighting you're advocating a little bit more Patton, a little bit more bradley and a little bit more i know
4: Michael, I'm going to drop down, but uh, I loved your book on ISIS. I can't wait to read uh, your next book on the GRU. Thank you for uh, your excellent insights. I certainly agree.
2: Sure thing.
0: Much appreciated. So we have more questions. I hope you'll stay with us. We have uh, Konstantin, who is in Texas. He's a uh, Ukrainian and who has been actually fighting in that war in 2014 and 15. And then we have Imperius Guardsman, one of our speakers and part of the moderator team, as well as Ed. So Konstantin.
4: Uh, hello, and uh, it's great talking to you. Um, I have a, a question for you regarding um, you've been in Kyiv twice, as I understand, since the start of this uh, invasion. And I'm wondering how uh, would you rate uh, the communication of the Ministry of Defense with the uh, with the social media in general? Like uh, I, know, I know it was uh, it, it's your, when I served, it was a big problem, um, and uh, I don't know how, how how would you rate it right
2: now? Um, so M.O.D.'s relationship with social media in terms of like their outreach online. I mean, well, look, uh, institutionally, I, I know the problems you're alluding to. And I, th- I th- think that many of them still exist. But then again, when you see the defense minister wearing um, a NAFO T-shirt and changing his avatar to a fella that has been freshly made for him in the forge, Um, It suggests that he's the game is shifting and it's becoming more engaged with, you know, I think I think a a large part of the the, the issue for Ukraine was it felt for many years that the world had forgotten that it was still in a state of war with Russia. Right. Um, This was a frozen conflict. Crimea was lost. The Donbass was kind of sort of stabilized, but not really. It wasn't headline news, but the invasion sort of changed things. And because there's been this international response Uh, most of it in solidarity with ukraine i think mod's tactics are shifting some of the videos that they're putting out uh seem to be designed to appeal more to western audiences than to ukrainians you don't have to rally ukrainians they're already on side as for reasons i've already mentioned um they know really i think they're not going to reach the russians unless they're just absolutely menacing and threatening to kill them all which i've seen videos like that too um, so I, I would say that the, the engagement is, is, is good at, at, at the present moment. Um, you know, I, I keep hearing, I keep seeing people make comments that, you know, Ukraine's IO is world-class and nobody does it better than the Ukrainians and, and so on and so forth. And yeah, I, I tend to agree. I've, I've seen some really extraordinary stuff coming from them. Thank you
0: gives me an idea somebody should take the james bond song nobody and the refrain nobody does it better and put it onto mr Resnikov because he is a, in that regard a classic superstar but then as he said himself in a self-deprecating way he is a jewish butcher so <laughs>
2: <laughs> i hadn't heard that one that's good hey, he Also, the a, other he factor I, I, we have to sorry i mean the elephant in the room here is is alinsky um who became a global icon a very charismatic guy, showed a great deal of fortitude and bravery early on when he could have tucked tail and run. I think his his sort of singular uh, leadership and his more than leadership even, his kind of public persona uh, has done a great deal uh, to help Ukraine in, in winning the sort of information war.
0: Yeah, very good point. Um, let's move to Imperial's Guardsman.
3: Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I was wondering if you had any comment on the Ukrainian domestic military industry uh, because they've been seemingly able to supply a much better quality of equipment than uh, Russia has throughout this whole war. And there's also uh, one of the more interesting theories about the Tsakieva strike and the uh, interesting... Uh, attackums uh backplate we've seen is that uh the ukrainians actually managed to kitbash the hrim2 missile with uh attackums guidance packages and, and somehow managed to fit it in, into a himars and uh that's and that they've been using uh, that instead of uh plain jane attackums
2: yeah. you. Sorry, you're breaking up. So I, it was like the McDonald's drive through. I, I heard like every third word, but I think I, I, I got the gist of your question. I mean, in terms of their domestic military industrial complex, again, I think they've been um, very innovative. Uh, if, if, for instance, if, if Saki were the sort of Neptune adapted cruise missile, well, that was something that was, I think, just in the conceptual phase. Uh, they didn't even have a prototype for it as of January, February. So if they managed to manufacture one, maladies. But again, I think that it was probably with American engineering assistance Um, in terms of, uh, I mean, the Neptune itself. uh, I, I think there's a great story to be done on the both the the manufacture of that missile system and how they managed to smuggle the missiles out of Kiev when the Russians attacked the facility that was manufacturing them and then of course how they were manned and and fired to sink the Moskva um you know the neptunes haven't been heard from again since that uh that rather bold and successful operation so I, i'd love to know more about that but i mean t- to answer your question as best i can I, I i don't have a very good insight into this a lot of this is as you can imagine kept top secret and you know american journalists least of all are being given guided tours of um you know underground facilities belonging to the ukrainian uh, military industrial complex so sorry but if that wasn't
0: established i mean you're not Walter to runty michael
2: well, no, but I mean, again, yeah, I, I've, I've pissed a lot of people off in Kiev digging around Saki. So, you know, and I think I built up enough credibility with them that they'll forgive me eventually. But it's they don't want to hear from me about this stuff anymore. Again, you know, I it's a great story. I just want to know what, what happened. That's, that's my job as a journalist, figuring things out. I'm quite sure, as
0: you said earlier, it will come out eventually. Um, we have loads of questions. I hope you have a few more minutes.
2: I can do about 10 more minutes and then I do have to dash.
0: Okay, so great. Well, then we'll do this quick. And please shoot.
4: Thank you, Michael, for joining us and for your expertise and insights. Uh, How do you see the situation, the disinformation situation in the global uh, south (laughs) developing in the short term?
2: I I mean, I confess I don't pay too much attention. Uh, I've done several stories on Wagner in Libya uh, and then the Prigozhin organizations, uh, I think I use the term political technology, um, with respect to elections in Africa. Um, they had, uh, this, this cutout organization, um, that was built to, designed to be election monitoring, but really was just kind of an influence campaign. Um, you know, look, I think it's more fertile terrain for them, um, because they, they have successfully capitalized on, pan-Africanism, and also anti-colonialism. Although, interestingly enough, with respect to that pseudo-election monitoring mission that they put together, they managed to recruit neo-Nazis from Europe. So neo-Nazis from Europe, racists, were going to Africa with an objective to push pan-Africanism. Again, it just goes to show you the kind of rank stupidity of their strategic planning, even at the information operation level. Um, But I don't know. I mean, everything I've read on the subject... Uh, indicates that, you know, for instance, they've been able to sell food insecurity as the fault of NATO rather than their own blockade and their own uh, war of conquest. So uh, but I have to say, and I I hope people don't take this the wrong way, uh, you know, um, Europe matters much more for the purposes of defending Ukraine and prosecuting the war. So I think as a matter of priority, it's about keeping European electorates on side. And, And in that respect, you know, look, um, there are still countries where I think if you were to take a referendum today, uh, you'd get a result that suggests that a good plurality, if not a majority, believe that NATO expansion was still to blame for why the invasion happened or that the U.S. should de-escalate and that this is a proxy, you know, all the, the stuff that I don't need to bore you with with these excuses. But um, but again, the polit- political leadership has managed to to cohere. Uh, and as long as that indoors um that's the most important thing for the foreseeable future as far as i'm concerned anyway people might disagree
4: well given the current global uh, energy crisis and inflation if we narrow this down to the arab countries or the arab world in the middle east uh same
2: question michael well i mean you know russia demonstrated that a little bit of hard power in syria goes a long way um and i mean i you know i cut my teeth covering the uh the Syrian civil war, and I can tell you that the, the sort of um, the, the white dwarf moment of online disinformation and active measures was when Russia intervened in 2015. Um, and they made a very, very concerted effort to mischaracterize the nature of that intervention. Remember, it was a counterterrorism mission, not designed to prop up the regime, and certainly not designed to liquidate CIA proxies, uh, which is what really it did do um and then you know everything from the uh, horrific vilification of the white helmets Syrian um you know medical workers rescue workers um yeah i i you know i sorry it, it this is painful history for me because i was in the thick of it back then and i you know a lot of my friends myself included um were the targets of these things and yeah i mean it, it is designed to demoralize the, the Germans have a great word which i won't pretend to try and pronounce but essentially it translates into decomposition uh and this is a strategy of um making you feel very vulnerable and insecure and essentially dissuading you from doing something that that could harm the enemy Uh, and the russians have been you know past masters of this uh and it's only until recently that i think that they've um been been meeting with a great deal of success certainly more than they they deserve or should have been allowed um, and like I, 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 we could go in. We could do a whole show about the U.S. follies in Syria and what should have happened there and didn't. But I do think that um, you would be hard pressed to make a case that Russia's intervention, which was successful in Syria and which was sold by the United States is going to be unsuccessful, this was going to be a quote quagmire. This was going to be another Afghanistan. It could have been an Afghanistan if we had made it such, but we chose not to. I think that that emboldened Putin to think that he could run roughshod over other countries including ukraine and i i am sorry i I don't buy the the case that oh no syria had nothing to do with no of course it did you know he sees russia as a great power in the making again he's made no bones about that being his legacy what he would like to achieve before he dies either of natural or unnatural causes um and yeah i mean i i think unfortunately you know it's it's the line from the godfather we should have stopped hitler in munich i mean that that's kind of how this works with dictatorships, very clear. Yep, I think we agree.
4: Thank you so much. Off to you, Axel.
2: You have to hit
0: them hard early. So, um, as one author of a wonderful fiction series once called, "Get your revenge in early." John Howes and Jim Fraser. John,
5: Axel, thank you, uh, Michael. Good afternoon. Um, your your previous answer is actually a really helpful segue. Um, there's, we take it as red. Uh, in here, that Ukraine will obviously emerge from this victorious. uh, And there has been an increasing amount of chatter about the potential collapse or at least fragmentation of the Russian Federation as a result of that. Drawing on your previous experience in Syria and and around Salafi jihadism, um, do you have any concerns about those, effectively the Muslim-majority stance, Republics around the southern rim of the Russian Federation and their potential to really spin out of control if the Russian Federation collapses it's a big question if you can't answer this one please consider writing something about it
2: yeah i I, I mean you know uh, Paul Goebel, I think is is the man you want to answer the question about the role that um, national minorities have played in shaping Russian history um, it's a good one. A good question. I just I'm, I am i don't feel capable or competent to, to answer in any meaningful way. I, I don't. I, the one thing I, I will disagree with the premise of your question, though, is when you say that we take it for a given that Ukraine will be victorious. I, I don't see that at all. Uh, I certainly don't take it for a given. And I'm, it's it's it keeps me up at night, you know, worrying that it won't be. Um, and also, I, I, I just don't know, you know, you know, it, 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 much like with the the end of the Soviet Union, when very few people saw its demise coming, um, people are, I think, coming up with very elaborate um, predictive models for suggesting that, you know, Russia could collapse as a state, Putin um, could be taken out in a coup and then replaced with somebody who makes him look rather kittenish, or you know, uh, I know Mark Aliotti thinks that, you know, we're on the precipice of a dawn of liberal Russia. And again, I just don't, I don't know how um, people come to these determinations because I certainly cannot and and wouldn't try to. Um, as I said earlier, you know, it's, it's hard enough trying to get a handle on what's happening now, much less trying to predict the future. Um, and again, you know, <laughs> I will go to my grave saying that for me, this war has demonstrated that you know, people who traffic in kind of oracular um, sort of hypotheses and 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 sort of behave as Nostradamus on anything geopolitical or anything at all, really. Uh, you know, they, they they just shouldn't be consulted uh, as much as they are because it's 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 a fool's errand. You know, I I certainly all my expectations, uh, my opinions, things that you know, I, I might have even put to print and probably did do. Uh, they, they, they were completely upended um, by events. And so it's it's a humbling experience for people in my position, I think, as a journalist and somebody who does do analysis. Um, but, you know, the last thing I call myself is an expert. And I, I actually don't like it when people refer to me as that. I am not. Uh, my book on ISIS, my work on Syria, my work on Russia and my work on Ukraine is all done journalistically. Um, you know, I have queried experts. I've relied on their analysis. Sometimes they've misled me, or they've got it wrong, and that's on me because you're only as good as your sources. But, you know, I I was just reading, uh, or rereading Homage to Catalonia for my GRU book, because I have a whole chapter on the Spanish Civil War, as I mentioned at the start of this uh, program. And you know, the great thing about that book, uh, and it's... it's, To to read that, to read Orwell in today's media context um, is both, uh, you know, um, enlightening, but also depressing. I mean, the great thing about that book is he clearly had a, a, a partisan objective. He belonged to a, a militia that was destroyed. Its leader was tortured to death in an NKVD prison in uh, Madrid. Um, but he was incredibly modest about what he was putting across. And he even says at one point, you know, everything in this book comes from my own perspective and my own point of view and you know don't take anything i say on faith because i could be wrong and other people will have different perspectives even treated the communist press very handsomely and generously even though in other moments he was rightly so contemptuous of them so i think it's it's important to to keep that sort of humility when, when approaching this stuff um you know obviously i have my opinions i'm not shy about sharing them because i've been in this game long enough and frankly i i like it when i know where journalists are coming from i don't believe in objectivity because it doesn't really exist and people who pretend to have it are being more deceptive and intellectually dishonest so you know my opinions you see me on twitter uh you're hearing me now you you read my work you know that i support ukraine but uh you know ukraine could lose and i could lose therefore emotionally and that's that's just part of the 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 game unfortunately uh and my work is a a journalist but also as a historian i mean it's it's a very delicate thing to to kind of extricate the personal from
5: the non-personal or the the political sure yeah. uh, and thank thank you for the reply um and i take your points all, all i would say is that i'm not I'm not suggesting that I or anybody else is trying to predict the future, but that scenario planning for various oh, potential outcomes is is prudential, particularly for governments. But if you're not aware of anything, that's great. Thanks for your time.
2: Sure. Okay, I
0: do one more and then I go run. Perfect. We have one more question from our friend Jim
5: Frazier. Yeah, thanks, Axel. Michael, thank you for your critical work uh, and, and your humility. Uh, talking about bogus oracles uh just now we here on the space have had long had a bugbear with the realists right that john Mearsheimer, particularly and you know their their belief that russia had some sort of realpolitik right to invade ukraine when you do bump into john Mearsheimer in, in the halls of washington what would you say to him now
2: well, first of all, I am not in the halls of Washington, thank God. I'm in New York, and I, th- I believe he's in Chicago. But look, I mean, Mearsheimer, I think when he was in grad school, was very wedded to this notion of how the world works. And Mearsheimer today is looking at all the evidence which suggests that the world does not work the way he thought. But as I said before, the arrogance of expertise, he is so, he I think emotionally and psychologically, he is incapable of acknowledging that he's just been wrong um you know if nato expansion is to blame for the war in ukraine uh then why did putin shrug when he learned that 850 miles of the russian federation border is now going to be shared with a nato member state right i mean uh you know it's just a, 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 the myths that we tell ourselves because they're seeming they're, they're, they're simpler than the complex muddy realities um and also you know look i Foreign minister of the former foreign minister of Russia under Yeltsin, Andrei Kozarev. And he said to me, I because I was expecting a whole different set of answers from the ones I got. I said, So, you know, you're, you're a Russian diplomat, you were there uh, at the creation of contemporary Russia and the fall of the Soviet Union, you dealt with Presidents Bush and Clinton. Um, what role did NATO have in, in doing this? And he said, Michael, the problem with NATO in the 1990s isn't that it went too far, is that it didn't go far enough. I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, that's kind of like the Pope telling you maybe there's no such thing as God. And he had this very intricate explanation for why the real failure on the part of the United States was that it did not invest in the future of Russian liberal democracy as a matter of international security. It sort of was was, was kind of high on its own supply at the end of the Cold War, triumphalist, and just assumed that, you know, history would go on autopilot from here on in, right? And Kozorov was saying, no, I mean, the forces of darkness were gathering in real time, both, you know, the, the revanchist commies and the hard right, the nationalist right, as now embodied by people like Alexander Dugan. And, you know, he was warning particularly the Clinton administration, don't assume that the future of Russia should be predicated on your personal relationship with President Yeltsin. It shouldn't. There has to be institution building here. And you need to do this as a matter of, of urgency. And, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, and I, I look, I mean, different people have different perspectives on America's approach to Russia after the Soviet Union. Um, but this is coming from, as I say, the, the, the person who was the foreign minister of the country. I found it quite fascinating. Now, that's something, um, by the way, that wasn't litigated in the op-ed sections of The New York Times and The Washington Post prior to the war. Instead, we were hearing from a chorus of Western opinion makers, many of them who you wouldn't even necessarily characterize as mere Shimer level realists. Um, But I remember reading a, a piece in New Yorker magazine about, you know, not one inch further and why, you know, NATO and its arrogance kind of got the russians back up against the wall and you know okay the war is not justified but dot 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 you know we have we're, we're culpable too and kazora said something else to me he said listen anyone who comes to you and says this is all to do with nato is being sent by russia as as a matter of propaganda to hoodwink western intellectuals into believing that this is a real thing he said it's not uh, at, at very senior levels of the russian government in his experience and even now Uh, there is an understanding that NATO is a defensive military alliance. It has no design to invade Russia or to do regime change. In fact, I can tell you a a, a funny anecdote. One of the biggest breaches NATO ever had um, was in Estonia, just after Estonia had acceded to the alliance, a guy called Herman Sim. He started out as a cop in Tallinn uh, under the occupation, and then he worked his way up into the MOD, and I forget the exact title of his role, but he was essentially a liaison officer with NATO, if not actually embedded in in, in NATO headquarters. And he just stole everything because um, he had been working for the SVR. He had been a, an asset during the Soviet period, and he was reactivated at some point after Estonia regained its independence. And, I mean, intelligence so valuable that it all found its way to the desk of Vladimir Putin, according to his former SVR case officer. And one of the things that he was tasked with doing is, go find the secret NATO war plans for invading Russia. And he kept coming back and saying, I can't find them because they don't exist. And his handlers kept sending him back saying, no, 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 they must exist. They must exist. Um, so, you know, again, like what we're told is, is sort of the grievances and the, the, the traumas of a, a turbulent transition from totalitarian superpower to, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, Nigeria with snow, upper Volta with nukes, uh, upper Volta with hedge funds and sushi. Um, It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I mean, Putin went into Ukraine because he wants to reconstruct an empire and he cannot do so. His version of Russia, his his idea of what a Russian empire should look like cannot exist without Ukraine. And this was not a war for, you know, a special military operation or limited to putting pressure or coercing or compelling Ukraine into doing. He wanted Ukraine. He wanted the whole country. And he can't get it. And that's driving him nuts. And that's a good thing because he doesn't deserve to not be driven nuts at this point. And with that, I have to run. But this has been fun. I've enjoyed it. I probably said way more than I should have, and I'm going to pay for it later. But that's okay. Michael. Only thank one moment, Michael. let
0: me introduce you to Yehuda, uh, our founder
5: of the space, briefly before you sure. run. Well, thank you, Michael, for coming. I'm sorry I missed it. I had a pressing appointment, but I, I, I hope to listen to the, uh, the audio after, and I'm sure it'll be great. And I, I think what you're saying is you'll have us believe that Vladimir Putin is a bit
4: of
2: a lawyer. Yeah, you don't say, huh? who to thunk it? <laughs> Thanks for coming. I really appreciate your time, sure. and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Okay, take care, guys. And bye to everybody. Yeah, we would love I'd to have questions. Back.